The roots of South Africa's special forces lie in a small element established by the Defense Force at the Army's School of Infantry in 1969. The Special Research Section, later renamed the Alpha Group, was tasked with the research into special operations and the required forces and training. This group formed the core of what became one reconnaissance commando, and finally, the extremely effective special forces that included five reconnaissance commando with specialized in pseudo-operations and working with guerrilla allied forces, and four reconnaissance commando, the dedicated maritime special operations unit, which we will continue to cover today. Welcome to the Military History mini-podcast, episode six, which is part three of our for Reconnaissance Commando, South African Defense Force episode, in which we will be covering the selection for these soldiers, as well as more history. Welcome. In 1967, 12 paratroopers were sent to Rhodesia for six months of training with Sea Squadron SAS. Sea Squadron SAS had originally been stood up in 1951 for the Malayan Emergency as part of the British Empire's attempt to quell the nationalistic and independent ambitions. Sea Squadron Rhodesian was stood up in 1961 and lasted until 1978 when the one Rhodesian Special Air Service Regiment took over. But for all historical context, they are the same regiment and the same lineage. They are a Rhodesian Special Air Service known as Sea Squadron, who gets their heritage from their British Empire. And they're extremely effective in their fighting against the rebels which Rhodesia sought to suppress during their War of Independence. Those 12 paratroopers and other small groups that followed going in the field on operations with the SAS and South Africans later formed the de facto D Squadron that conducted independent operations together with the Rhodesian forces. In the meantime, 1968 had brought an unexpected request of help from Biafra during a visit to Angola by the Director of Military Intelligence. Major General Lutz, with an eye to developing relations with African and European governments supporting Biafra, he recommended the provision of assistance despite not seeing much hope for Biafra, and the government agreed. A small team, led by a South African Defense Force soldier, was sent with communications equipment and light infantry weapons to train and observe. After that deployment, they were established with the Special Research Section, something that would become very important in the South African Special Forces history, before being sent with a small group to France for specialist training. In 1970, the former commander was sent to Simonstown to attend a 12-week diving course with the Navy and then back to France for an attack diving training in Corsica. A second group went to Simonstown in Corsica in 1971. Those courses were the first step towards a formidable maritime capability. Meanwhile, Alpha Group and then the Operational Experimental Group, now reporting to the Director of Military Intelligence, who had become convinced of the value of true Special Forces capability, decided that they were in need of a maritime branch. At this point, the selection process for the maritime operators had to be created. The selection process for these Special Forces was, and remains, exceptionally demanding in its physical, emotional, and mental requirements. 
in any typical years of the 1980. For instance, some 120 soldiers of different ranks might apply, of whom perhaps 19 would qualify. As the Special Forces League has pointed out, more people have climbed Mount Everest than have qualified as South African Special Forces operators. Until the early 1980s, the pre-selection course was heavily biased towards physical fitness and endurance. This was revised after a study launched in 1980, which found that existing approach wasted too much effort on people who would never qualify and washed out people who could be developed into operators. The study identified the physical attributes an operator actually required and developed a short program of physical tests to determine if an individual's skeletal, muscular, and cardiovascular systems could allow him to meet the demands of special forces operations. Of that process, they revealed that only about 15% of young men had the physical attributes required. Meanwhile, a parallel evaluation of successful operators already in Special Forces showed that an IQ of about 115 was required, which excluded about 80% of the population. Similar psychological and emotional evaluations of serving operators showed that only about 10% of the population was suitable. Combining the three evaluations then brought up the number to about 5%. It also revealed that the Special Forces were competing directly with business and the academic world for that small proportion of the population. While the results of the study were not fully accepted by the higher echelons, special forces were able to introduce a new one-week pre-selection phase in place of the previous three-week course. With smaller groups involved, the ratio of instructors to candidates was also improved, making the selection process even more effective. This new process also made it effective and possible to identify an individual who had the potential but perhaps fell short on one or another area, with some of those being given time until the next course to work on their weak points and then being given a second opportunity after a remedial period. This new pre-selection phase was followed by four weeks of light infantry training, covering everything from field craft and weapons training to communications and basic explosives. It also allowed the instructors to evaluate the candidates under pressure, judging their energy, self-motivation, task, structure and ability, judgment, initiative, adaptability, ability to function in a team, and, and as well as decisiveness. At the same time, it served to mold a group of individuals into a team. Following the introduction of the new, more scientifically conducted pre-selection, the dropout rate for this phase fell to about 20 to 25 percent. Those who passed this phase went on to a final three-day selection phase designed to serve as a final weeding out process, with the emphasis on the candidate's ability to demonstrate physical endurance while retaining mental skills. Its basic elements varied over time, but one example compromised a 45-kilometer march with a 40-kilogram pack in about 15 hours, a 4-kilometer one-on-one casualty evacuation with the full kit of both soldiers also to be recovered, a prisoner of war resistance to initial interrogation phase of about 5 hours, a 10-kilometer speed march followed by an assault course, a 15-kilometer march with a 100-kilogram iron cross, four lengths of rail hinged to a central frame, to be carried by four men in seven hours, 30 minutes without dragging it on the ground, a puzzle that requires colored chains to be threaded through the colored poles, and then a final 15-kilometer carrying of those poles. Then the selection board considered the candidates' performances on the basis of the observations noted by the instructors during those three days. Generally, 50 to 70 percent passed, reflecting how much more efficient the new system was compared with the old, where sometimes as few as 5 percent succeeded after a very considerable investment in effort to time on the part of the Special Forces operators. Successful candidates then entered the eight-month basic operators training phase run by one reconnaissance commando. The 
training included parachuting, initially provided by one parachute battalion, later conducted in-house, water orientation, enemy forces and weapons, basic demolitions, air orientation, bushcraft, tracking, survival, rural tactics, urban tactics, survival in hostile and urban environments. During the years of the fighting in Angola, the final two months of the course were structured as an actual operation to allow the candidates to be evaluated and to evaluate themselves and each other under realistic but controlled conditions. Finally, the newly badged operators were appointed to a team, usually in a slot that matched areas in which they had performed the best during training, with the different units selecting people they wanted. After some time as a member of an operational team, the operators could choose a specialization for further training and professional development. All members of Special Forces also continued to attend various promotion courses of their parent service, ensuring that they, and the Special Forces as such, remained current in respect of developments in doctrine, equipment, and tactics. In the three combat service services, although inevitably, most operators actually came from the Army. Similar attention was paid to the selection and training of various support personnel, the armorers, the logisticians, signalers, and technicians, without whom special operations would be neither special nor successful. Something that stands out about South African Defense Forces special operations selection, to me, is that comparable to MACV-SOG selections and training, in a wartime environment, the final operations and the final selection processes were conducted with real operations. Something that hasn't really been done, to my knowledge, outside of Vietnam and Angola specifically. These two unique entities that make these selection processes different are an interesting thing to note, but ultimately the interest lays in the success of the operators as well as the actions which they took in combat. Looking at the organization of multinational special operations, as well as the Warsaw Pact, it becomes obvious that the South Africans were ahead of their day in their specializations, their organizations, and their processes for selecting soldiers and sailors, for that matter, to perform in their respective roles. From a historical perspective, I think it's important to consider that this history isn't well known. It's been largely unappreciated, undocumented, and unstudied to my knowledge. In all my professional education, being a bachelor's that is, <laughs> if you consider that much, there is no study of the African wars, the unification wars, the deunification wars, or the border conflicts. I hope to cover this more in our future episodes, as this is only part three of our South Africa series, and I plan to have many more. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can find us on Instagram and TikTok at militaryhistory underscore, or on our YouTube channel. If you'd like suggestions for a future podcast, being that we have so few listeners, about less than 100, if you send me a DM or any sort of message or comment, I'm more than willing to dive into whatever topic you would like to be covered. Thank you.